If you would, please turn in your Bibles back to Psalm 80. Of course, as has been said, it has been many, many days since we have occupied our minds and hearts with exposition of the Psalms, but we find ourselves praising the Lord because He has brought us back together so that we might do this on Sunday evenings, filling our hearts with the heart of the psalmist. Of course, there are many, many authors of the psalms, uh, both in terms of those who have written the psalms and those who have arranged the psalms. We don't know anything really other than the writers or choir directors of the psalms. We don't know the arrangers per se. It included them, of course, but the Lord providentially orchestrated all of the arrangement of the psalms, and of course, this psalm is from Asaph. The title is, To the Choir Master, According to Lilies, which might have been a hymn tune in ancient Israel that they were very familiar with. And then it says, A Testimony of Asaph, and then a psalm. And in the process of understanding how to rightly go through a passage of Holy Scripture, one can often find some literary clues within the passage itself, which point to the passage's own internal consistency and its continuity. And such is the case with Psalm 80. What clues do we find in the psalm itself which could help us explain its meaning? Well, in the case of the psalm here, Psalm 80, that we're going to study tonight, the answer, I believe, lies in the writer Asaph, who is both the author and the choir director of this song, and how he structures, how he chooses to structure what we might call the chorus or the refrain. And he does so three times in this psalm. Did you notice that uh, internal consistency, the the continuity of the repeated words? Look at verse 3. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then verse 7, a little bit different but very similar. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. And then again at the very end, verse 19, restore us, O Lord God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Now, of course, anytime something of a refrain or repeated reference or a statement, this of course being a song, anytime it's repeated, not just twice or three times, but perhaps there may be a psalm where the same thing is mentioned over and over and over again. Like, uh, the Lord be praised. The Lord be praised. The Lord be praised. This particular psalm, Psalm 80 of Asaph, is very obvious that the meaning of this psalm is bound up in that cry of the psalmist to do precisely what the latter part of verse 2 exclaims, and that is this, stir up your might your power, and come to save us. This psalm's all about salvation. 
Now, when I say salvation, you may be thinking that I'm talking about spiritual salvation, and of course, that's a part of it. But the bottom line of this psalm is that Israel is in very deep trouble. They are in deep physical trouble. In fact, the very homeland, the homeland of Israel itself, has been utterly destroyed. We don't know exactly what kind of war this was. We don't know exactly who. There are, of course, a lot of suggestions by a lot of commentators on the psalm of exactly when this took place and who was doing the destroying and what was the spiritual sense of Israel and uh, why was this happening. A lot of conjecture. And perhaps even some of the details have been taken out of it as to exactly when and where because it's a psalm for all the ages. It's a psalm for us. When you're reading in your Bible as a Christian, someone on this side of the cross, and you're reading Psalm 80, perhaps it's much better to you, it certainly is for me, when you're reading a psalm like this, and it's not so tied to some historical occurrence that you and I might say something like this, oh, well, because it happened to them way back then, and because they were troubled because of who was troubling them and that it was a part of their land and because I live in a day in the here and now where no one's attacking me and no one's attacking my land. So you might read something like Psalm 80 and just shut it out, tune it off. Well, it doesn't really apply to me. It's not necessarily something that I need to think about because in the historical context of that time, that's what they were going through. Oh, I might be able to pick out maybe a verse or two that might apply to me, but I can't really relate to this psalm. And of course, my response to you would be, I beg to differ. I beg to differ. Oh yes, they were going through a historical context. And there was a marauding band of warriors, enemies against Israel, to be sure. It did happen to them, and it was in this psalm, as there is truth to several of the psalms that are coming out of these lament categories of psalms in which the people of God were mourning because their land lay desolate. Of course, yes. But this particular psalm, it seems to me, is saying over and over and over again, even if we don't know exactly what war it was and who it was who was coming against Israel, we can know this. The psalmist is asking for the people of God to sing and to lament and ask for God to stir up his mighty power and save them. Save them even physically. To say nothing of their spiritual salvation. And perhaps the psalmist and his message to his people is so heart-wrenchingly expressed in verse 14. Do you see it there? Verse 14, turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. It's almost in my, my ears now. I can hear the psalmist leading them in this lament psalm and saying, God, Yahweh, don't you see how much we're suffering? Our land has been taken away from us. 
we've been displaced, we've been moved on, we're, we're prisoners now in some foreign land. Do you not see your chosen people? Do you not see our plight? No wonder he says, turn again, O God of hosts. And by the way, the word host means simply, O God of armies. O God of armies. And then he says, does Asaph, look down from heaven and see. Now, he's not being disrespectful to our Lord God. He's simply saying in a moment of great fright and plight, aren't you looking at us? Don't you see us? Don't you see what's happening to your chosen people? He's really vexed. The utter, the utter plight of his chosen people, they're in such a mess, and he's exceedingly angst of soul, enough so that he writes this song of great alarm. And I think that's so very much applicable to us. It may not be the exact historical context. We may not be uh, called upon to uh, see the ravages of some foreign country and we say, well, we just need to pray for them. That's a hideous way to, to be attacked. And boy, I just uh, hope that everything turns out right and you're so distant from it. And perhaps it would even be if you and I were in such applied ourselves. Maybe our own country was attacked. I just saw very briefly on the news that the United States just just a few moments ago have brought a military offensive against the Syrians, and uh, there's possibly times to come, and certainly will be according to Scripture, that there will be times when, and in fact a great final time in which the entire world will be under attack. But that's not now, and that's not us. And with these psalms, there's almost a great tendency just to shut it off from your minds because you assume, well, this is talking about physical calamity, and this is talking about war, and this is talking about some kind of dominating enemy that comes against me, and I don't have any of those experiences right now. So it's just a whole hum psalm, and as I said before, I beg to differ. Here's what Asaph is doing. He's calling on his fellow Israelites to pray. And that's applicable to all of us, right? To pray. And to pray specifically for two things, and it's very easy. Restoration and revival. Restoration and revival. And in the first seven verses of this psalm, there is a plea for restoration, that God would restore his people. And then in the rest of the psalm, verse 8 beginning and all the way to verse 19 is a plea for revival, restoration and revival. Now, I'm going to explain those words a little bit more as we go on, but here's what we need to, to understand. Wouldn't you, especially if you were a part of the nation of Israel and you were seeing your land crumble before your very eyes, and wouldn't you want to do exactly what he says in the beginning of this psalm in verse 1? Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. Give ear. That, of course, implies that they're praying, right? They're praying. And it's almost as though their prayers are being lifted up to the 
brass heavens and coming right back, right back down. Don't you, don't you hear us, Lord? This is your chosen people. We're like scattered sheep being strewn among the physical landscape of a different land, a different world, a different country, and we're in utter desolation. I mean, what would you do if you were ripped away from your home? What would you do if you were kicked out of your own country, as it were? And not only were they taking away your passport and denying your visa, but they were also hitting you, striking you, killing some of you and your family. This is what's happening here. We don't know exactly when and what and who and where, but we know this. In human history, and this is one of those examples, there were people who were desperately crying out to their God. Oh, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You see what they're, what they're doing? Asaph is leading, and remember, this is a psalm, but it's a song, and it's a song of lament, and he's leading them, probably in a minor key, to say something like this, aren't you our shepherd? Where are you? We're hurting. We're vexed. We're being attacked. Our land is being taken away from us. They're, they're undoubtedly even seeing the absolute devastation of everything in their land and in their homes and in their cities and in their place that was being destroyed. Homeland gone. Physically forced to leave it while agonizingly watching as their land was being destroyed by their enemies before their own eyes. Just put yourself in that place. You'd be beside yourself. And of course, I would suggest that it's not even the displacement of the enemies, but also the destruction of their faith. I mean, it's one thing for you to say, I'm a, I'm a committed follower of Yahweh God, and nothing as we sometimes boast to ourselves, nothing will ever dislodge my confidence and trust in such a God as Yahweh. And no more than a minute goes by when you say such a thing, and then you see the enemy coming. And it's as though they have full course to come and obliterate you, separate you from your family, destroy your home, say all kinds of evil about your God. And you don't automatically see the retribution of God upon them. You're the chosen people. Why not? Where are you? God, come through for your people. We're your chosen ones. Where are you? I mean, this is challenging. I mean, is it no wonder that God's people are pleading for their God to restore them? And isn't it any wonder that Asaph is likening his God, their God, to a shepherd? We're scattered. We're scattered. Is this what the shepherd of Israel does? Isn't a faithful shepherd one who goes 
even without his own food and, and his own thirst, and he gathers all of these runaway shepherd, one of these runaway sheep, and brings them back to the fold? Why aren't you doing this? You who led Joseph like a flock. Joseph, probably a reference to the idea of uh, those first and ancient days. The idea not only of Joseph, but Joseph as a representative of the people, Israel. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us, it says here in Psalm 80, verse 2. What's the psalmist doing? He's appealing to the God he knows is in the heavens as the shepherd of Israel who like the flock upon whom Joseph was leading and this God who's enthroned and he has all of these mighty angels who are sitting around the throne enthroned both upon the cherubim and before God's bidding, the angels are just ready to attack. They're ready to do whatever Yahweh tells them to do. You've seen in your Old Testaments, if you've read large portions of it, that in the history of Israel, sometimes even when the, the marauding enemies who were coming against Israel were more in number, they were less in power, they were those who seemed like they were going to come against us, even if they were less in power, or even if there were more of them than us, and Israel would be concerned, they would be praying, they would be on their knees asking their God for intervention, and the refrain might come back and certainly did in the history of Israel time and time again, don't you trust me? Don't you trust me? Even if there are less of them than you, but they may be more powerful than you, or there's more of them than you, and maybe they have less weaponry than you, but sometimes they were defeated, Israel was, because they were cocky, because they weren't trusting in God. Maybe they were even using Yahweh God as kind of a talisman, a, a lucky charm and he was going to teach them a lesson. Or perhaps at some times it was just a matter of fear and fright, and Israel did not have that kind of confidence and trust in Yahweh that they really needed, and God was teaching them a lesson, and they were defeated. Or perhaps there was even sin in the camp. Remember the idea of Ai? And remember there was a man who kept some of the booty, the, the stuff that was devoted to destruction, and he kept that in his tent. And because God had said, you don't do that, and if you do, consequences will come. And then there were a couple, 3,000 of the Israelite soldiers who perished because of one man's sin. I mean, there's a multiplicity of reasons why it doesn't seem that Yahweh answers, or when there seems to be an answer, it's all bad. So, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but we know this. 
It's bad. It's bad. And they're wondering, where are you? He even gives three names here, Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. That's probably, those are three northern tribes of Israel. So now we can say that something's happened, of course, to northern Israel. And we also know from reading Israelite history that that northern tribe or set of tribes had a lot of spiritual issues. And uh, Judah, though chastised some, seemed to be a little bit more faithful, right? The remnant. So this particular grouping of Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, they're in deep trouble And so Asaph calls upon the people of God to sing. Stir up your might and come to save us. You know what they're really saying? And of course they say it outright. Verse 3, restore us. Restore us. Now let's perhaps in our minds say that when they use those words in this song of lament, this is a This is a song of lament to be sure, but it's a psalm also of repentance. Repentance. They're supposed to be singing a song where they're not just asking for the genie to come out of the bottle and rescue them. They're taking responsibility and culpability. This is our issue more than it is Yahweh's issue. You know what you and I ought to do when we read a psalm like this? And you hear that refrain over and over and over again, restore us, O Lord, restore us, O Lord, restore us, O Lord. Yes, it's true, we need physical intervention, we need protection, and spiritually speaking, we need God's face to shine. You know what that is? That's a phrase that means something like this, shine on us with your favor. Shine on us with your blessing. In other words, be good to us. They're not saying serve us and we'll give you an old good attaboy and then move on. We were saved once again, thank you very much. No, it's not like that at all. That ironic blessing, make your face shine upon us, is a way of saying we want your favor, but you remember and so do I because it happens a million times in our own Christian life. We want God's favor. We want him shining on us. We want his blessing. And there's always something or should be in the back of our minds like this. And I know the path of such blessing, such favor, and it's through my repentance. It's through my repentance. Because more often than not, we're to repent. The reason we're in the mess we're in is because we've failed to repent. You say, well, what's repentance? What does that mean? Repentance is the idea of going one way and that's not a good way and turning around and doing the opposite, doing the right thing, repenting. Sometimes in our Bibles, the word repentance is actually translated in our English text and sometimes it's this, it's the word turn, turn. And that's what's really going on here. That's what verse 3 is saying. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And in this case, it's probably best to translate that word saved, not in the sense that you and I might understand it in terms of salvation saving, but physical deliverance. 
physical deliverance. This is restoration. I mean, the fact of the matter is we need a, sa- we need a Savior, don't we? And we need a shepherd to guide us. Sheep get lost. Sheep are often wayward. And we're wayward, aren't we? We sin against the Lord. And sometimes we sin against the Lord repeatedly, maybe in the same way or the same category or in the same pattern or with the same topic. And sometimes when the heavens seem like brass and we're praying and nothing's happening and our prayers are ascending and they hit the ceiling and they come right back down, or so it seems to us, it may not be that the shepherd is refusing to shepherd his sheep. It may be that the sheep are refusing to repent. We need a shepherd. We need a divine being to rescue us. And Asaph's leading them in the right way. A shepherd who is enthroned around and about with powerful angelic beings who stand at attention. You say, well, that's that's an Old Testament picture. Well, do you know in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, it says that you and I ought to be uh, careful who we entertain because we might even be entertaining angels unaware. The angelic world is dispatched at God's own bidding to even protect us to this very day. And we need them. We won't see them. But if we repent and we turn, the sovereign one dispatches them to do whatever is needed on our behalf. It's real, my friends. I'm not talking about hocus pocus. I'm not talking about black magic. I'm not talking about diviners. I'm not talking about the the kinds of things like the Old Testament talks about when it uses the kinds of words that talk about the underworld and what Satan does when he tries to counterfeit the overworld, God's world. No, I'm talking about this. The sovereign one who is listening to our prayers dispatches his helpers to do exactly that, help help, but it's conditioned on something you and I must constantly be doing, and that is repenting. Now, let me get a little practical with you. Sometimes when we're praying in this way, because this is a psalm and it's a prayer song, and it certainly is telling us that God is needed to restore us for his face to shine upon us so that we may be delivered And then look at verse 4. It goes right into, again, this idea of prayer. O Lord God of hosts, or Lord God of armies, how long will you be angry with your people's what? Prayers. Prayers. So this is a psalm about praying. And, of course, this is a psalm about, collectively, the people's prayers And God is angry with such prayers. Now, we don't often think about that at all. We just think all prayers are in bounds. No prayers are out of bounds. But the Bible tells us a lot about praying with wrong motives. Wrong motives. In fact, turn over in your Bibles to the book of James. The book of James. This will tell us at least 
one example, and there could be others. We don't have time tonight to talk just about prayer and what happens when we're not praying as we ought. But here's one example that I could give you in James chapter 4. In James chapter 4, here's something that might affect God and his anger at our prayers, whether singularly or collectively. And here it is. Look at the middle portion of James 4 verse 2. It says this, You do not have because you do not ask. Now, if you just stopped right there, you and I might come to the conclusion that the reason we don't have everything we want or everything that we perceive we need, it's simply and only because you're not asking for it. Now, sometimes that's true. Sometimes you do need to ask for it. Just simply ask the Lord for it. But of course, what the for it is there for is that you and I must have a a righteous heart. And notice what it says here in verse 3. You don't have because you don't ask. Verse 3, you ask and you don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, your lusts. I don't know exactly what's happening here in Psalm 80, but it might have to do with what we could call wrong, selfish prayers. Wrong, selfish prayers. Here's an example of one of the wrong, selfish prayers that we sometimes pray. I'm guilty of it, and so are you. It's so common. It's something like this. I'm in a jam. I'm in a bad way. And now, at the end of such a calamity, I'm asking God, as the genie in the bottle, to get me out of my jam. And I just pray, and I get on my knees, and I cry, and I come to church, and I give money, and I try to serve, and I am trying to do everything I can to get the genie to do what I need him to do. When the fact of the matter is, what you and I should do, myself most importantly, is to go right back, not to the God of unanswered prayers, but to the person who's praying such prayers and ask this question, how did I get myself in the jam in the first place? Who am I? Why am I treating God as though he's got to do everything I want him to? Thank you very much. What kind of Christian am I when the bad things that happen in my life that I've brought on to myself is when I most pray to God and I pray to him and ask me to get out of the messes that I myself made. And what happens if he chooses not to? Then perhaps we might know something of what verse 4 means. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers? The problem wasn't God. The problem was their prayers. Does God delight in delivering his people? You bet he does. But isn't it true that sometimes your prayers are not answered, not because God isn't listening? It's because you and I have put ourselves in the position 
of not seeing the shining face of our Savior. This is, this is what needs to happen. Or maybe it's not wrong motives. Maybe it's not the fact that I got myself into this jam and I better figure out a way to get myself out of it and I tried a hundred different ways and when those didn't work, I finally went to prayer and when I went to prayer, I found out that my God was actually angry with me because the biggest issue was that I was failing to repent and that I was spending my life and my prayers on my own lusts and desires and passions. Maybe it's not that at all. Maybe it's the fact that I have been obedient and these calamities have still come upon me, and I'm asking God for deliverance, and I'm doing the right thing, and I haven't gotten myself in all of the jams that have brought this calamity on me. It's just one thing and one thing alone, and perhaps it's this, that I haven't been praying consistently, persistently. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. You know this one very, very well. And this is a teaching on what we could call consistent, persistent prayers. This is what your prayer life and my prayer life ought to be like. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. If you ever think of the idea of consistent, persistent prayers, and you're trying to remember where the passage was that teaches you about it, don't fear. It's Matthew 7, 7. That's pretty easy to remember. Matthew 7, 7, and here it is. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, do you notice the repetition here? Verse 7, ask. Verse 7, seek. Verse 7, knock. There is a progression there, isn't there? And by the way, this is a great acronym because what is spelled out by the word ask Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. That's pretty easy. When you, when you fail to pray, or you fail to pray persistently or consistently, just remember the door and remember asking. Pound on the door. Pound on the door. Don't stop. Be consistent. Be persistent. And really, my friends... When you look at Psalm 80 and there are these repeated refrains, verse 3, restore us, O God. Verse 7, restore us, O God. Verse 19, restore us, O God. This is a living example in a song of persistent prayer, isn't it? I don't know how many times in my own Christian life I've done this through my prayers. Lord, I don't want to be a, a pest but I'm coming once again. I'm coming once again to ask you for help. Lead me. Guide me. Answer this particular prayer for me. I'm vexed. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to respond. So, Lord, if you would be so kind, I'm, 
I'm asking again. I'm seeking you again. I'm knocking on the door of answered prayer. Would you come to me? Would you answer me? Lord, I've sought to repent. I've sought to turn from my sin. I've sought to be who you've created me to be, a willing slave, a servant who wants to be your loving, obedient child, and so I'm coming to you again. No wonder verses 4, 5, and 6 say, O Lord, God of armies, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Now, if, if again, we're not careful, we're going to assume that Asaph is asking God for what sounds like an indictment of God himself. An indictment of God himself for the way his people are being treated by him. I mean, if you just read verses 4, 5, and 6 in and of itself, and you didn't know the context of the whole psalm, and if you didn't really understand or you've forgotten the idea of turn or return or be restored, you'd, you'd think, Asaph, you're out of line here, pal. You should not be talking to God this way. Because he is asking the question, how long will you be angry? You've given your people nothing but the bread of tears to eat and the tears of drink in full measure. In other words, you've made them sick to their stomachs by eating and drinking tears fully and completely. And what's worse, Lord, you've made us an object of scorn and contention with our neighbors and they're even laughing at us. But I don't think this is a backdoor way of indicting God with anything. I think this is actually a forward way of saying, and we've brought it upon ourselves. We've done it to ourselves. This is, this is not what we should be doing. And Asaph, I think now as the choir director, is leading them to acknowledge their bread of tears and the drinking of tears in full measure. Because in verse 7, he turns right around and says again, Restore us, O God of armies. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Restore us. Restore us. Starts with it. And in verse 7, he ends with it. Restore us, not just in the restoration of what we want to be or what we think we need to be. I agree that we need that, Lord, but I know that we need to be restored because we're the ones who took ourselves out of your favor. And I'll tell you, that's one of the most legitimate prayers to pray. I've done it to myself. I, I am not even worthy to be called your servant. I'm not even worthy to actually be on my knees before a holy God who sees nothing but a sinful man who's on his knees before such a holy God, I've done it to myself, and I've done it to myself for the millionth time. Restore me. Restore me to your favor. I've seen your gloomy face through all of the wreckage of our people, and I'm asking you, would you be so kind? 
Would you see, be so benevolent to us that you forgive us and restore us to your shining face? Have you ever had that situation with your, with your mom or your dad when you're growing up and you just longed for a shining face of approval from them? Especially when you knew you were naughty. You knew you were bad news. Lord, I've done it again. Mom, Dad, I've messed up again. Could you find it in your heart to forgive me? Could you restore me to that relationship that between us is nothing but sweet, where I have your approval, your affirmation? That's what this psalm is all about, my friends. And particularly about the children of God, the children of Israel. They also not only need restoration, but they need revival. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, that second key word. You don't find it at the beginning in verse 8, but you do find it in verse 18. Do you see it there? Verse 18, give us life. So, put those two together. Restore us, O God of armies. And now this, give us life. Some of your translations actually may use the word revive. Revive us. Revive us and we will call upon your name. See, when you're looking through your Bibles and you're looking for those key words, I tell you what jumped out at me when I started studying Psalm 80 were those two words, restoration and revival. Restoration and revival. And who is needing restoration and revival? I tell you, it's Israel. It's ancient Israel. Look back at verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Who was that? Israel. Remember they were in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years and God delivered them. Do you know that the most important act, miracle of God in the Old Testament and is likened to the salvation of Jesus Christ of sinners on the cross in the New Testament is their deliverance from Egypt. Their deliverance from Egypt. That is the, the, the crowning epical piece of miraculous history for the Jews, 400 plus years of Egyptian bondage, and God says, I finally hear my people. And he delivers them, and he delivers them with miraculous things, doesn't he? And they try to counterfeit the dominance by keeping Israel in bondage by their miracles, and God out miracles their miracles, and he then delivers his people and the miracle of the Red Sea, and they all pass through, and the Egyptian army, including its pharaoh, are all drowned in the sea, and God is to be praised. And the way the psalmist here, Asaph, likens it is this. God was creating in Israel a luscious, beautiful vine. A vine. Growth. Fruit. Elegance. He says, you drove out the nations 
and planted it. Well, what does that mean? Well, what he's doing is really just a recitation of the history of Israel. We, we were brought out of Egypt, and we were put in a place where seemingly, if we were to cross over into the promised land, there are all kinds of ites there, all kinds of different nation states, nation peoples, who all have that I-T-E-S on the end, and they have to be removed. God's promised it to his children. They have to be removed. And oh, by the way, you don't need need to have a problem with that because all of those nations are nothing but wicked peoples. And they deserve their triumph over, and they deserve the judgment over them, and they deserve to be ridded out of that place because they don't belong there, and they're a wicked people. And like the Canaanites, they need to be stripped off the face of the earth. That's their wickedness. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He's just giving a history history of Israel. You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations, and you planted it. What's the it? The vine. The nation. You cleared the ground for it or them. It, them, took deep root and filled the land. In other words, they were prosperous. They had everything they needed. God was taking care of them, and he was building them up. Verse 10, the mountains were covered with its shade. That means that the mighty cedars with its branches were sending out its branches to the seas and its shoots to the river. And what was that? That was nothing other than this mighty nation spreading itself all around They were growing, they were being blessed, they were being honored, he was protecting them, they were spreading out from sea to shining sea, we might say. And then look at what verse 12 says. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? In other words, there's a major key change from verse 11 and 12. I mean, we, we, were, we were fabulous. We were luxurious. We had our name in lights. And then something went terribly wrong. And I suspect part of that was we became enamored of ourselves. We were fat and sassy. And God was obliged to punish us. And how did he do it? Well, our walls are broken down. So he goes from the vine now to a broken wall metaphor. And maybe he's combined the two, the walls that protect the vine. And what happens? All who pass along the way pluck its fruit. The boar, a wild beast, maybe some of these marauding persons, maybe these armies, maybe these ones who are fighting against Israel and they want to take back their land, whatever it may be, the boar, an evil beast from the forest, ravages the vine and all that move in the field feed on it. In other words, Israel's ripe for the pickings. They're being decimated. That's what's happening. You know, if you ever want to find out about Israel being the vine, just remember Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. It's just a sort of beautiful description, a beautiful illustration about Israel being the vine. And you're reading in Isaiah 5, and, 
and you're hearing about how God so took care of them and he built them up and they were luxurious and fruitful. And then he says, essentially what's happening here? And you got full of yourselves. And then you know what comes out of the beautiful vine when the vine is not doing what the vine ought to be doing? Bitter fruit. Bitter fruit. That's what's happening here. And isn't it also true that in John chapter 15 in the New Testament, we find that there's even Jesus himself talking about the vine and the vine dresser? And of course, he's referring not only to his disciples, but to all true followers of his. We should probably look that up, shouldn't we? John 15. Could we be reminded from John 15 about maybe something we could call a faint echo of Something similar here in Psalm 80. John 15, 1. I am the true vine, Jesus says about himself, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You know what I think is going on in Psalm 80? It's in our Bibles, and it's about Israel but it's also a lesson for us that if we're not bearing fruit in obedience and love to our Savior, we're going to be dealt with. We're going to be dealt with. Now, you and I would say, yes, but how and in what way? Well, you're pruned so that that branch can bear more fruit. That's what it says, that it may bear more fruit. So what does God do? Here's a key word, my friends, key word for tonight. God chastens us. He chastens us. He chastens Israel for their sin, and he chastens us, believers in Jesus Christ, because of our need to be pruned so that we would bear more fruit. What happens in your Christian life happens in my Christian life. I'm no different. I'm the preacher. But don't think I've got a free ticket that avoids pruning. I don't. I don't at all. In fact, I would rather suspect at times because the preacher is supposed to be not only the preacher but the example, perhaps there's more pruning going on here than elsewhere. Keeping a Man of God, always and forever bearing fruit. This is, this is really what's happening. This is Psalm 80. And it's no wonder then that verse 14 says, Turn again, O God of hosts. You say, wait a minute. Before when you've talked about restoring or turning, it's our need to repent. But now this says, turn again, O God of hosts. And you know what that means? That doesn't mean that God is needing to repent. It means turn in the sense of turn our way and look at us. Turn our way. Don't turn your face away. Shine your face on your people. The shine of blessing, the shine of favor. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see, that is, see our plight. Verse 14, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, 
and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Who's the son there? The son is Israel. In fact, sometimes, like in Isaiah's prophecy, the word son is being used collectively of all Israel. Your son, the son. Even later in this very psalm, the son of man. Not necessarily thinking immediately of Jesus, but who is as a Jew, the ultimate son of man, capital S, capital M. Yes, but if you're talking just about Israel here, Asaph is challenging them to sing a song of lament by saying, turn your favor on us, please. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for us this vine, your son, your children, the children of Israel. I mean, I tell you what, To me, that's one of the most legitimate prayers after you've repented. First, you pray for repentance, and then you pray for favor. So you have to get it in the same order and in the right order, and that is, I've made a a louse of my life because I am a louse. I've made a mockery of things because I am a mocker at heart. And what I need desperately is to repent of my sins to turn and go in the other direction so that you will then turn your favor upon me. You see how that goes? And then you say this, once I have not only prayed the prayer of repentance, but I've begun to live my prayer of repentance in the actions of my life, but I also ask for you to look and see, and I need from you the very favor of your shining face. That's what I need. I'm your son. You're my father. Would you allow me to ask, seek, and knock for the millionth time? The son. I'm a son. Verse 15. Even further, verse 17 the man of your right hand, the son of man who you've made strong for yourself. And you know there will come a day when just a few psalms later, Psalm 110 will come true. You don't have to turn there, but listen, Psalm 110, one of the most oft-repeated psalms in all of the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Son of God, with a capital S, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, will ultimately put all of the enemies of God for the footstool of his feet. He will vanquish all of these people who have harmed Israel. And for us as believers in Jesus Christ, he'll vanquish all our foes. Don't forget this. There will be enemies and they will all be vanquished by the Lord Jesus Christ, which will include enemies like the Israelites, even themselves, who were judged by God because they might have been born as Israelites, but they weren't true Israelites. They didn't love the Lord their God. They might have been born into an Israelite family, but doesn't the wilderness wanderings actually say about those 40 years that everybody over the age of 20 died in the wilderness 
and they died as unbelievers. Now, my friends, that's a sad song. That's a very sad song. They weren't genuine repenters. And because they weren't genuine repenters, they died in the wilderness, a tragic death, because they refused to bow their knees to Yahweh God. Well, what about the Gentiles? Same for them. There were multitudes of Gentiles, Israelite haters, disobedient, serving a pantheon of gods, even giving up their babies in some kind of ritualistic way, believing that the gods would bless them because they would give up their own children. All kinds of false religion and false worship and the vast majority of them died as well, Gentile unbelievers. You say the vast majority? Yes, there were some for whom the true Israelites reached out. And they reached out to the nations. And you know that's exactly what's happening today. There is a remnant of Jews who across the world and though very separate from each other, are doing the hard work of evangelizing both Jews and Gentiles. And God is honoring their efforts. And you know that as the Jews have now, right now, not a cascading and celebratory opportunity in mass to serve their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, because the veil has been placed over their eyes, and now it's the time of the Gentiles. And so Gentile evangelism is happening around our world and it will continue to happen. And then one day there'll be a massive evangelization of the rest of the Jews that God has elected to salvation. And when the last Gentile comes in, this Israelite evangelization will sweep the globe and all of God's elect will be saved. And do you know the Bible says that the number of both Jews and Gentiles who will come to faith are like the sands of the seashore. You can't even number them. It's so mighty. And you know, out of those Jews and Gentiles are a faithful people who say to God, and he responds, shine the favor of your face upon us. And God does. And he does. Is that what you want? Is that what you want for your life? Well, if you do, it'll be because the hand of the man of your right hand, the son of man, verse 17, whom you have made strong for yourself, that is a faithful Israel. A faithful Israel. And through them, a faithful Gentile world. And then through the Gentiles, a faithful ingathering of all kinds of Jews in the end of time. And no wonder verse 18 says, then we shall not turn back from you. We shall not turn back from you. I mean, that may be the the crescendo of this psalm right there. We will not turn back from you. We will do what's right and you will revive us. You'll give us life, spiritual life, even physical blessing. And then notice their praise at the end of the psalm. 
and we will call upon your name. That's what we're going to do in about a minute and a half. We're going to sing the last song, and we're going to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the psalm, my friends, that you and I should know very, very well. No wonder it ends with this. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, O God of armies. Let your face shine that we may be delivered or saved. I ask you tonight as we close, to which category do you belong? You say, what do you mean, what category? The category of the delivered, the saved. Because Jesus Christ has set his love upon you to save you, to deliver you, maybe not from a physical marauding band of enemies, but to save you from your sin. If you've come tonight and you've acknowledged in your heart and maybe acknowledging even right now, I'm lost. I'm lost. I don't know Christ. Oh, I've gone to church a hundred times, a thousand times. I've acted like a Christian. My parents are Christians. I live in a country of Christians. But you know in your heart that you're lost and you need a Savior. Then pray this prayer. Restore me. I'm going to repent. Bow your heads with me as we close. I'm going to repent, Lord. I need your saving deliverance. I need your shining face, O sovereign God. And I need the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, to deliver me from my sin. My sin is so great. My wickedness is so evident. And I ask you to deliver me from such sin. I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me for making a mess of it. I want to ask for your shining face of forgiveness. I want you to love me and take care of me and remake me and refashion me into a person who repents every day of my life and who wants to have you turn by looking and seeing that I need so much help. I ask you to to be my Lord and my Savior, Jesus the Christ. And I ask that you would allow me to know the joys of sins forgiven and the joys of eternal life. Please make me your own. O Son of Man, Lord Jesus Christ, the strong one, the strongest one, the strongest they'll ever be of Israel, please be my Savior. For those of you who already acknowledge and know with confidence and assurance that Jesus is your Savior, then as you pray and as you survey your life and as you know the wrong choices and the passions of the wrong motives of your prayers and the lack of persistence and consistency in prayer, 
Make Psalm 80 one of your sweet very own. Ask God to make you a prayer warrior. Could be a physical challenge in your life, could be a spiritual one, could be both. But you're asking Lord Jesus to help you, the Son of Man, the great physician, to take care of you. Ask him now, dear Christian person. Ask him to help you. Ask him to help you with the work week that starts tomorrow morning. Ask him to make you a better employee, better worker, more obedient, more loving, more gracious, more kind, more ready to serve, more anxious to pray and to trust and to give our Christ who loved us and saved us by dying on the cross for us a kind of person that represents Christ in the world to others so that they too may be delivered from their sin. Thank you for our time tonight. And may we sing now to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.